0: One of the most challenging issues in recent years in matters of local governance is the relationship between government and the sharing economy, whether it's Uber and Lyft, Airbnb, or other companies that are disrupting just normal aspects of day-to-day life. Local governments are often the first that are called upon to formulate a policy response that can either protect the public interest if it's done right, or if it's done wrong, undermine innovation in some of the most significant new up-and-coming areas of our economy. And so to discuss this, I'm joined by two scholars and a practitioner who've studied this closely or worked in it firsthand. First, we'll hear from Professor Jordan Carr-Peterson. He's an assistant professor of political science at North Carolina State University, and he wrote a working paper for this series titled Zoning for Disruption, Local Exposure to Non-Traditional Tourist Activity and the Rise of Regulatory Burdens, on digital platform, short-term rentals in major U.S. cities. We're also joined today by Stephen Miller. Stephen is a professor at the University of Idaho College of Law at Boise. He's written on a variety of topics, but of particular interest, he's contributed a chapter to the recent book titled Urban Data and and the Platform City, uh, part of the Cambridge Guide to the Sharing Economy, published in 2018. And he's written on a variety of other aspects of local governance. And finally, we're joined by David Owen. David was, for several years, head of policy strategy at Airbnb, the company that I suppose we'll be focusing on the most in this conversation. In addition to his work uh, doing policy strategy for Airbnb, he also saw these issues from the other side of the regulatory table. He served as Uh, chief aide to the president of the Board of Supervisors for San Francisco for almost six years. And so he's seen this firsthand both on the business side and on the regulatory side. Jordan, David, Stephen, thank you very much for joining me today. Jordan, we'll begin with you. Why don't you tell the listeners about your paper, um, how you came upon the subject and, and what you learned in studying it?
1: Sure, absolutely. So this is actually morphed, as we kind of talked about offline a little bit yesterday, into what I would describe as one and a half projects right now, not, not exactly two papers yet. Um, but the, the genesis of it all, so is background. I, my background is in both political science and law. So um, in keeping with having sort of a foot in both camps in the social science world um, and still in the law world, I went to law school at the University of Florida a while back. Um, I embarked on this project after going on vacation. So I um, was up in Santa Barbara Um, learned about like a week after I think I departed the the Airbnb we had stayed at in Santa Barbara, that the city was enacting pretty stringent new Airbnb regulations where the minimum stay for transit accommodations was 30 nights. So we got this note from the host saying, you know, sorry, we we won't be able to do this in the future anymore, Um, which kind of led me to this real Pandora's box of questions of the really examining the heterogeneity with which municipal governments have approached the regulation of short-term rental platforms. Um, And of course, short-term rentals aren't new, right? Um, People have been going on vacation rentals where they will stay in essentially what is otherwise traditional residential housing for a long time. Um, But what digital platforms have done and the way that this has disrupted this particular sector of the hospitality economy is allowing for just the rapid Proliferation of people staying in traditionally residential areas, Um, and so I set out really with two aims. One, in the kind of law mode, um, and their more recent work actually is just answering the question of what what is the variety and what are the types of regulatory mechanisms that cities employ to govern short-term rentals. And most of those, even though they're called just short-term rentals, most of those are uh, direct response to Airbnb, Verboactivity, all these different n- newer companies. Um, and the second, the kind of more analytic and social science question is asking, what are the types of cities? What are the characteristics of cities that have regulated short term rentals more or less stringently? So those are the kind of dual avenues that I'm working on right now.
0: Thanks. Nice. And so, what did you find as you studied the impact of the entry of Airbnb into local markets? You really focused on them and saw that their participation in local markets is generally what triggered uh, the fastest regulatory responses. How did things happen?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in terms of the analytics, what we find, I mean, you know, we it's it's a strange universe working with local regulation and local data. Like the the projects are really only as good as the data that are out there, and it's quite often imperfect. Uh, this was kind of a herculean task just to get the regulatory information out there we had to limit our search Um i did this with a former research assistant of mine braden sims at tcu um, and he's actually my co-author on the kind of law side of things now um, went through local ordinances in what are considered and designated by the census bureau to be the principal cities of the 50 most populous metropolitan statistical areas in the u.s and we found exactly like adam said a moment ago that the cities that were more likely to regulate short-term rentals at all, and those that were more likely to regulate short-term rental activity more stringently are those that had a higher per capita market activity rate for short-term rentals, essentially. And that's an imperfect measure that I can get into the weeds of later on. Um, But essentially the the finding is that there is demand for regulation when you have more Airbnb activity going on kind of in a per capita sense in a local jurisdiction. And, and the, variety of mechanisms that cities use to regulate um, are almost as numerous as there were kind of cities in our sample. There are tons of different ways that these companies are being burdened and, and owner operators in particular, not, the, not even the firms, but the individual owner operators are being burdened by um, regulatory platforms in the cities. That was kind of the most interesting finding coming out of the descriptive search.
0: You have a, a very helpful table where you range, you walk through everything from limits on how many days uh, a house could be rented out in a given year, requirements for neighbor notification, occupancy limits, advertising bans, and so on. The things that kept David so busy for a few years of his life. Um, what should people take away from, from your research? And why don't you give us a description of this broader project that you're working on? And what we will, sure. um, when, it, when it's published, uh, post a link to that one as well.
1: Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So yeah, I appreciate the center's support. It was awesome to get to share this work. Um, So I am, despite kind of my academic background, I'm in a political science department. I'm in the school of public international affairs at NC state. Um, So I'm not a law professor. So one of the things that's really cool about the gray center is that I was able to kind of bounce these ideas off people that deal with legal scholarship more frequently and and more as generators of content than I do. Um, And one of the, the takeaways for me is that the, the proffered rationales that cities will give for enacting a lot of these regulations don't necessarily match up very well with the interest that they're claiming to serve. Um, So the, you know, the impetus for regulating a lot of this activity, there's, there's a whole host and in the the second iteration of the paper, I I go through it more thoroughly, but um, the, the the sources of opposition are manifest, right? Um, This could be anything from NIMBYs who don't want any development geographically proximate to them to um, affordable housing activists who say that Airbnb activity is having market effects on the local housing supply to people that think that the local hospitality sector is particularly jeopardized through this kind of substitution effect by people going to cheaper short-term rental activity instead, um, which is like natural in a market. And so that's like one of the the things I do in the more recent publication or recent uh, article that I've written is look at individual kind of process tracing approach in social science language in Miami Beach, um, Arlington, Texas, and Santa Ana, California, and Miami Beach, which enacted by far the most stringent regulations of any of those three places, and maybe anywhere in the entire country at this point, um, they were lobbied, the city council there was lobbied really heavily by the Greater Miami and the Beaches Hotel Association. So like the local arm of the the incumbent firms, essentially uh, organizing together to lobby for these regulations. So I think that what I would advise people to do going forward, and I'm really interested to hear everybody else's perspective on this, especially given um, Steven's work from, I think a more kind of conceptual level about regulating the sharing economy is that we should be a little bit more skeptical of the reasons that local governments give for enacting these types of regulations. Um, some of which in an area that has really high per capita um, hospitality or tourism activity, um, because it seems like they might just be, this might be regulation for the sake of protecting incumbent firms, right? Um, in other places, that it could be NIMBY interests masquerading as kind of pro affordable housing. So I, I have reason to be skeptical, at least on my end.
0: Well, with that, let's turn to Stephen. Stephen, what was your, what are your thoughts in response to the paper? How does this fit into what you've studied, and how should we understand the last several years worth of of development of of legal and regulatory responses to companies like Airbnb?
2: Well, thank you. Um, thanks for giving me the chance to participate in this. Um, I, uh, you know, Jordan, I I really enjoyed reading the paper. um, And uh, I thought that the typology of responses that you noted was actually really helpful. Um, I think it's things that maybe people might have thought of, but um, uh, sort of out there in the ether, but it's helpful, I think, to have it in front of us to be able to to think about um, more rigorously. Um, I'll mention just a couple of things that uh, I think maybe that, that just the, the paper made me think about. And then you can tell me, you know, <laughs> some of them are um, related and some of them maybe are a little tangential and we can go uh, kind of where you want, where you want to go. Um, one of the things that I thought uh, um, was that, <clears throat> um, I, I thought it was interesting to think about, you know, what's happening in the short term rental market and it's, and the sort of the desire to limit it uh, in, say, single-family zones compared to what you're seeing now in terms of the desire to sort of rethink single-family districts in terms of multifamily housing. Um, in other words, we're willing to rethink the, 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 the single-family district in terms of affordable housing, um, and yeah, somehow with STRs or a sort of a modest commercial use, you still see some kind of opposition. I think there's something really interesting to dig into there in terms of what's what's why is that you know why are we willing to see this difference um, uh, in in rethinking um, single family districts for affordability but uh, not for sort of modest commercial uses and um, you know i'll just I've gone on the record saying that i I, I personally am for having um, you know broader um, modest commercial uses in those districts, because I think that they get actually to the kind of districts that uh, people want to live in. Um, I mentioned a couple other things, and then we can kind of just go wherever you want. Um, I think one of the interesting things about your paper that from a law side that, um, you know, law professors might kind of think about um, are questions about limitations for for local governments, right? Um, you know, you, you uh, kind of conclude that local governments should have, be able to have more um, heter- heterogeneous responses. And of course, there's been a lot of lobbying by the industry to, to limit that, um, and primarily using state preemption uh, and things like that. Um, I don't know whether we want to get into that or not. That's been kind of talked about a fair amount, but I think there's that. I think there's the whole sort of you know home rule, Dylan's rule stuff um, in some other jurisdictions as to whether local governments would need some kind of statutory authority and what that might look like um, if you're thinking that 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 they should have that. Um, I'll mention just a couple of other things and then uh, maybe we can have a little bit of a conversation. I think one thing that I, I, well, two things that I I didn't see as much in your paper, but that I think are are kind of big issues out there right now. Um, One is um, whether local governments should get involved in the landlord tenant space um, and how much they should try to engage or regulate that as it relates to Airbnb um, I didn't see that as much in the topology um, and maybe I missed it um, and apologies if I did <laughs> um, but I think that you're right that that I, it hasn't been there as much um, but I think you know the way that this affects rent control in those few cities that have it or even evictions on an assignment sub subleasing clause, um, and the way and most recently, you know, Airbnb has tried to structure things, as I understand it, they have a new policy where they basically try to work with landlords to become sort of equity participants in assignment and subleasing, which is kind of a, totally fascinating. In fact, I'm going to integrate it into my first year property class as a way to talk about the, the, the rethinking of assignment and, and subleasing clause, clauses clauses. Anyway, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. You know, there's kind of t- testing the boundaries of, 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 of law that's kind of basic common law stuff, you know, but that, that um, it's really kind of retesting those boundaries. I think that's kind of neat. Um, and then one other thing, the last thing I'll just mention to kind of get us going is, um, you know, there was a paper that came out last year talking about just um, the, the incredible rise of HOAs. Uh, and uh, in my region in the mountain west, um, the paper uh, noted that eighty six percent of new construction new residential construction uh, has is, um, is encumbered with CCNRs and I think that local governments increasingly are going to have to think about whether they're going to engage at all in how short term rentals um, are regulated by HOAs if they want to participate or have meaningful discussion because obviously whatever the local governments are doing, the, the prevalence of HOAs increasingly in regions like my own um, is a second form of, of regulation that's almost as pervasive as, as local land use regulation. So uh, I'll stop there. Uh, and and uh, But overall, I, I really enjoyed the paper and I thought it was a really helpful topology for thinking about how and why uh, local governments uh, engage in this.
0: Well thanks Stephen and now David you've been so patient I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on on the things we've discussed so far i'm sure you're glad to hear that that Airbnb is contributing not just to local economies but also to property law uh syllabuses <laughs> um but, but how should how should how should scholars think through these issues um what do you think they either need to focus more on or what are they missing altogether um that that you see you know from somebody who dealt with it firsthand
3: Sure. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for for having me. And, and, uh, you know, I, I want to echo, um, Jordan. I think this is a, a really interesting and, and thoughtful sort of survey of uh, the landscape, which is really sits at the intersection of a couple of pretty interesting areas of law and policy that haven't really come together here to for, you know, between Local land use regulation, which as you note is truly, uh, you know, trying to understand and properly survey that even just in one country, uh, to say nothing of the globe, um, is a really fascinating challenge. Um, but between land use law, uh, internet regulation, you know, there have been previous discussions in this podcast around CDA and a lot of developments in what was kind of a sleepy and stable area of the law for pretty much since almost the time that it was, it was implemented. Um, you know, tax policy um, and housing, you know, regulation, and really, you know, new urbanism and you know the future of cities. And and what I think is is fascinating, you know, is sort of the way that all of these things have have come together as uh, this new marketplace has really grown up over the last you know 10 or 15 years around what, as you note, is you know an activity that has existed for a long time. You know, in, in ski and beach towns the world over vacation rentals um, have existed for a, for a long time and regulatory models have existed in those places to address that activity. Um, and, you know, we really saw this market uh, obviously grow pretty substantially with the innovations that companies like Airbnb, um, you know, brought to the world. And, you know, with that came uh, a really fascinating array of regulatory approaches, we'll call them, um, and, you know, it's interesting seeing, you know, your, your outline of all of the different sort of tactical regulations that governments, uh, you know, have, have employed. Um, and I, you know, I have plenty of additional ones that I could add to the list. Um, you know, some, some more interesting and obscure than others. Um, but even here, what, 12, almost 13 years into the existence of Airbnb, um, I hesitate to say that we have seen the regulatory model that you know, is sort of the settled approach to addressing uh, this, this marketplace. Um, we see trends, certainly, um, and what I think is really an interesting area for, for future discussion, and that I think you note and allude to in, in the paper, is you know, this is sort of a survey, um, but really understanding the efficacy of regulatory approaches, um both in terms of uh what uh you know cities have broad discretionary powers as all law enforcers do relative to what they choose to enforce and to not enforce or how they enforce things or who they enforce them against for good and for bad as we all know especially given the climate of of things in this country this year um you know so for those cities that have bans in place, um, you know, for many of them, that is a choice to simply do nothing about uh, an activity, which really isn't bothersome and to, you know, to continue doing what they typically do in the area of land use regulation, which is complaint driven reactive enforcement. Um, And, you know, for others, they have adopted extremely complex regulatory schemes that uh, regulate everything down to the type of lock that should be used on the door of short term rentals. Thank you, Anaheim. Um, And, you know, in you know even in the pre-COVID era but to say nothing of what the world and the budgetary realities for these cities and state governments look like today um, you know what are their regulatory priorities are they able to actually enforce these and how do those track to the underlying policy goals of a regulation And, and I think you know your you know your initial statement around what is the sort of what, you know, sh- how should we question the the policy rationale behind many of these regulatory schemes? Um, and what are they really trying to get at? And, you know, I'll, I'll sidestep the, the first question. We can we can talk the politics of, of local government and the power of the incumbent industry. And, you know, it's always interesting to talk about the ride sharing versus the home sharing, because, you know, the taxi industry is not beloved and not powerful. But uh, the hotel industry certainly has deep and broad relationships um, and, you know, no No entity has brought the the hotel industry and their their friends and organized labor closer together than Airbnb and the short-term rental uh, issue over the last uh, decade. Um, So I think that's really an interesting area is um, separate from just what are the regulatory approaches that all of these different local governments are taking. Um, but what works? What is what is actually uh, helping accomplish the stated or the real policy objectives of folks in in state and local government, primarily local.
0: You know, David, if I could just ask one follow up question on that before we turn back to Jordan. What does work I mean, from the perspective of the of Airbnb or the short term rental companies? And I should tell our audience your experience actually ranges well beyond that. But before and after Airbnb, you've you've advised a number of both large existing companies and also innovative new startup companies on their government relations policy. And I'm sure things vary a lot from industry to industry and company to company. But just thinking back to your days working with Airbnb on short-term rentals, is there a regulatory structure that, that, you thought worked best. I mean, obviously, maybe the, the your favorite would be no regulation at all. Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, I shouldn't be presumptive, but um, I won't put words in your mouth. What, what is sort of the best and most feasible regulatory structure, and is it at the local, state, or or, or other level?
3: Yeah, you know, the, the the to that last question first. I think you know we, we've certainly seen some examples of of states. Uh, preempting or at least setting the boundaries for how local governments can approach uh, regulating the short-term rental industry, which which I think is interesting. Um, you know, I, I do think that land use is a fundamentally local function uh, for government in the United States. And, you know, it is truly uh one of the clearest expressions of a community's value, how they choose to regulate land use and who can do what, where, and again, for good and for bad historically in this country. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that that's really up to each jurisdiction to decide from the perspective or to the question of, of what is the, you know, the preferred uh, regulatory approach. Um, you know, simplicity matters. Um, and it matters both for the regulated community, but also for, for government and for residents. Um, I think where we have seen these extremely complicated ordinances um, both in terms of this just the procedural process of getting a permit or you know in some cases needing to get three or four different permits from different agencies all with different timelines and lengthy you know application processes um, we, we've seen frustration on all parts the 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 short-term rental operators don't like it. The platforms don't like it. Local government doesn't like it. They pass this shiny new law and compliance is low and then everyone gets mad at them. And so I think, you know, one interesting test for, for you, Jordan, as you continue this research is, um, you know, how many times has a city gone back to the, the regulatory process, the legislative process for short-term rentals? Um, you know, and and you can see for, you know, it, and it may track to larger uh cities with larger concentrations of short-term rentals certainly um but you know these these places that adopt these very complicated ordinances typically that is the first of one two three four in some cases five six or seven legislative processes and we won't even talk about you know a city like san diego which uh i was working on in you know 2015 and 2016 during my time at airbnb and and still to this day has not adopted um An ordinance to regulate an industry which has existed there in the beach areas of that city longer than you know most of the other cities that have gone through one or multiple of these these legislative processes so i I think that's really um you know simplicity for uh the process for people who are concerned about you know a property that is a nuisance in their neighborhood um for regulators because government has a lot of things on its plate especially now um and you know not every city can staff up a short-term rental enforcement office with three or four full-time employees just dedicated to that purpose which some cities have done um so i think that's you know probably the easiest and obviously you know i mean the, the cities with bans again some of them um as a matter of discretion or otherwise choose not to enforce those uh or do so selectively and others are very aggressive and you know i think in addition to a simple ordinance, one which really recognizes what is what is going on, what there is an appetite for, and tries to understand and balance the various interests as opposed to sort of a, a reactionary, you know, kind of leaning. I, I I don't necessarily support no regulation. I think that, you know, there is a role for clear, simple regulations, um, so that everybody knows the rules and and, you know, there's recourse for bad actors and, you know, there everyone else can sort of play by the rules and, and, and th- that works. Uh, and we've seen some examples of that. And we've seen plenty of examples of, uh, of the alternative, but I, I think it's still a very dynamic area of regulation.
0: Well, great. That's uh, a lot to think about between uh, Stephen and David's comments. Jordan, do you have any, any reactions or responses to what we've been discussing so far?
1: I will. I'll have to pick a couple of these comments and focus on them, or we might be yeah. here until tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Um, Cause you guys have given me a lot to think about, which is super helpful going forward. Cause there are some like, spin-off ideas I've had to to think how um I could make you know find new new sort of wrinkles in these uh, complicated questions. Um going back to something that Steven had said just to begin with, um I I also sense this tension between um increasingly common I mean you see a lot, right? And kinda if you guys are on Twitter, like housing Twitter, um criticism of single family zoning as an institution uh, on on some legitimate grounds, right? Um and that some of the people that are at, at once advocating for relaxing some of the rules related to the, the zoning code in terms of occupancy or building requirements or whatever um, are also maybe some of the people that are fighting encroachment of um, Airbnb activity into residential zones, which is I think sort of a um, analytic tension there. Um, because you and I think you see that actually enshrined in some of the ordinances. Um, in which single family zones are treated differently for regulatory purposes than multifamily residential zones do. So they're saying that this is the type of activity that we're actually willing to tolerate in multifamily residential zones. Fine, have an Airbnb there if you want. Um, But they're protecting single family zones from encroachment explicitly in the code. Or or they'll call it like, I think Austin does this, Austin, Texas, with like type one, type two, type three, short term rentals. Um, And they just, you know, leave this halo of um, just isolation around the single family zones where they're resisting any sort of encroachment and and in other zones, putting different types of regulations on them, but essentially allowing it. Um, So that's one takeaway for me. And I haven't really come up with a good thorough explanation for how that sort of um, regulation can be explained, at least in a way that I think is um, intellectually honest. Um, but that's something that I think, uh, future work should absolutely address. And, and going along with that too, like I know that this, it's been covered in, um, earlier work, not, and certainly questions about overhead state control and preemption are not limited to the short-term rental market or short-term rental regulation. Um, but to the extent that questions of preemption do bear on it, I think that you can kind of look at that, cause there are very few states currently that do have this kind of absolute bar. Um, at the state level yet, but it's increasing pretty, pretty rapidly, right? Like if you look at these kind of national industry-wide short-term rental organizations, they're putting new bills on the table all the time um, to preempt at the state level, kind of with different, different degrees of vigor, I would say, you know, a lot of them have relatively relaxed grandfather clauses in them stuff to to leave existing regulations in place, or like the, as I'm sure um, David can attest, the Florida preemption law, which actually doesn't go too far in preventing new regulations either uh, even though it kind of was claimed to in the state legislature there. So the, I would say that one thing I would be interested in studying, too, is the, um, the efficacy of the preemption statutes themselves. Um, on the other stuff, I, I agree that um, looking at the translation of a sh- at what point a short-term rental, um, whatever it is, owner, owner-operator, host, and guest relationship is legally transformed into a landlord-tenant relationship would be extremely interesting. Um, it, it's a little outside my expertise. Um, but I think that it's something that's kind of the, the boogeyman hanging above the whole enterprise, right? Like, is what, at what point these relationships legally convert, and both owners um, and guests are flush with a new um, set of legal rights and obligations. Um, and the Homeowners Association activity, too, would be super interesting uh, to think about the the layered relationship. And in, in a lot of places, too, it's not just the um, concern with the city regulations and potentially the kind of contractual obligations under an HOA, but also there can be separate county regulations in some places too, um, which may take the place of some, and something I don't have in the data either on the kind of quantitative side, is which places locally at the municipal level might have chosen not to regulate because there is a superseding or at least a parallel regulation at the county level. Um, and that just came, you know, it's like at some point you have to stop reading these statutes, right? Um, but uh, on, on David's points, the ones that I would focus on is that I think that once something that this entire project highlights maybe better than anything else is the divorce between the policy formulation and policy implementation stages, because the enforcement mechanisms are just all over the place. Um, and having a complaint-driven response um, framework in most places means that these do largely go unenforced. I think I have probably stayed in Airbnbs in places where it is actually illegal too to be running it out even now. Um, because the, the city governments have not had very much luck because they've been pretty heavy-handed in, try- in making these draconian demands for data from the firm um, that for, for very good reason are resisted for the privacy of the owners, right? Um, so to, you know, to some extent, it, it is as much as they're willing to, to put behind it in terms of resources, um, which in, in most places, probably not very much. I didn't know this thing about the type of lock in Anaheim, though, so this is something I have to go, go read about later today. Um, but yeah, I think that trying to, to gauge the local tolerance or even local um, enthusiasm for these regulations is not always easy. Uh, and I, I would inter- be interested, too, in kind of going forward on the social science side to just think of other measures uh, or other indicia. Because like most of the stuff we think about in kind of local politics and political science in the, the associational quantitative results that I do have, I find that increased Airbnb activity per capita is associated with uh, increased likelihood of regulation and also uh, cities and counties that voted more for the Democratic candidate for president in 2016, more likely to regulate, not super surprising, but also so like not a groundbreaking finding or anything, but some of the things that we tend to associate with uh, demand for regulation were actually statistically insignificant and that might be a sample question too. So like that's why uh, to David's point that This sort of activity that short-term rental activity was more common in ski towns beach towns stuff like this and that there's an existing regulatory framework there um i think that looking at those existing models of regulation maybe could speak to big you know urban municipalities today but it may be that the needs of the places are just too different and that those wouldn't necessarily translate but i think that's at least a starting point rather than just going out of nowhere and having the city council meeting with like 12 or 14 angry homeowners who didn't like the party in their neighborhood last week, which is what I've watched too many videos of at this point.
0: Stephen, I want to draw on some of your experience beyond this issue, the things you've written on over the years you've written on climate change and, and urban government. You've written on, um, uh, cities and, and, and the boundaries of nature. So the relationship between cities and ecosystems, you've written about wildfires and disasters and local government. So over and over again, you've returned to these themes of, of local government and these issues that reach well beyond any one government. I mean, climate change most obviously, but in these other things you have each local government having a significant impact, both on what's happening there in its own neighborhood. And perhaps, you know, either for better or for worse, the impacts on other communities, and it seems to me the regulation of short-term rentals is a similar situation maybe in some ways. Um, you have this new type of technology, um, this, this new platform. And each single government's sort of a attempt to regulate that technology can have sort of network effects or spillover effects, externalities, whatever you want to call it. I'm just curious how, how you see that through the how you see this issue through those lenses of many, many local governments all dealing with one single inter you know, interrelated problem.
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, I suppose there's a lot of ways I could take it, but I but the thing that popped into my mind is actually one of my favorite quotes from the, the last um, IPCC report on climate change was, you know, they, the, the last report had not just the the, the the hard science, but also sort of social science stuff. And what it noted was that, you know, the world over, uh, the places where there is growth, the most growth is actually places where there's the, the least administrative expertise on how to address that growth. Um, I think that that's just a really fascinating issue. You know, it used to be that historically the world over people would tend to go to New York or L.A. or whatever. Those cities are growing. But the reality in the United States is is that the Nashvilles, the Columbuses, the um, and even, you know, smaller cities than that, places like Boise, where I am, are all growing. And that's happening the world over. And a lot of these places, they, are, they do not have the regulatory structures. And frankly, they just haven't even thought um, the way that a place like L.A. or, or um, New York uh, may have thought about these things. And I think that that's just an interesting mismatch of our time, which is that I think growth is often happening in places um, where the areas are not um, used to having the, the types of administrative structures in place to address that. Um, but to that end, you know one of the things that i 've sort of tried to postulate in terms of just taking this as a as a complicated large issue and breaking it down is i've sort of several like little things that I often say one is that you know you can get most most of these issues are either neighborhood issues trying to preserve an a, a, a neighborhood characteristic or a nuisance issue you know and those are those are that 's like eighty five percent of it I think you know <laughs> um And and the other thing that I I like to say is that the current zoning regulation is is 1920s technology. I mean, most local governments are using zoning codes that were created on a model um, created by a commission of Herbert Herbert Hoover in 1922. And we're coming up on 100. And where else in in our laws are we using 1922 regulatory technology to address a completely new type of inter- internet-based economy, and um, when I, I think when I put it that way, you know, um, people are at least more open to saying, well, look, like this guy's not coming in saying we need to not have regulation, but to say, look, you know, we re- haven't really given that much attention to local government regulation in the last hundred years. You know, maybe we should think about is there a 21st century way to achieve the ends that we want, right? Um, so, you know, I've I've postulated a couple of ideas that I've thrown out there and no one's picked up yet. But, uh, you know, I think independent of my particular things, I think, you know, I we, who says that we have to use 1920s technology to regulate uh, the, the sharing economy? Maybe there's a new way to get at neighborhood preservation and nuisance uh, and still have, um, you know, vibrant commercial activities in our single family districts.
0: I mean, it, it, or David, go ahead, go ahead.
3: Yeah, just a quick thought there, cause I think that is that is a really insightful thought. And, you know, I think along with that 1920s technology comes the values that underpinned uh, those the, those structures of regulation when they were first proposed. And I think that we are seeing um, certainly in, in, you know, this year, um, but over the last decade and, and, you know, throughout the sort of the digital age and this revolution, we, we've seen a lot of change that rapidly outpaces even, you know, current uh, regulations that are trying to keep up. And, you know, I think the one of the reasons why you've seen this, this rapid growth of these new marketplaces is because there is now such a yawning divide between, you know, Say in the transportation sector, you know, the livery regulations of a hundred plus years ago and the realities of the the needs today. And in the same sense, you know, how people choose to live and use their property or travel and want to travel, um, you know, and, and live versus these, you know, regulatory schemes that were created over, you know, now a hundred years ago, right? Um, with all of the, the sort of things that come along with that time and those, those values and principles that underpin those regulations.
0: It might not be as uncommon a problem as we think. I mean, just a few years ago when we were the nation was debating net neutrality regulations, in large part that was a a debate about how to interpret the Communications Act of 1934, right? I mean, there are a number of areas of law um, that's the stock and trade of of this center for the study of the administrative state. These old statutes that have sort of stayed on the books, and we've seen decade after decade of, of the administrators trying to think about how to adapt those old statutes to new problems. Without sort of thinking afresh from the ground up about actually creating a 21st century, um, statute that would govern it, I, I'd be curious to, to, to think through what is it that spurs lawmakers to actually update the laws rather than sort of hope that the administrators can adapt these decades or century old legal frameworks to new problems. David, I'm curious. You've, you've, you've advised a number of companies. Uh, Airbnb, I suppose, being the, the the biggest of the of the new tech tech companies you've advised, um, Jordan's paper in a way is about the sort of exceptionalism of Airbnb, right? That that the, the the takeaway being that once Airbnb enters the scene, there's a regulatory response. I mean, I do I remember uh, renting places through vacation rental by owner, uh, VRBO whatever it was, um, long before Airbnb was on the scene, and there wasn't a sort of a national debate about it. Um, so actually Jordan's, Jordan's findings, they make a lot of sense to me that Airbnb, when it enters a market, people respond. And we saw the same thing with, say, Uber and, and, and Lyft, right? There are some companies who, when they enter the scene, just have real ripple effects on the policy debate. In your experience in working with a variety of companies, are the regulatory problems that Airbnb faced, are they similar to the general sorts of regulatory problems other companies face or, or is Airbnb was Airbnb's experience in general different from most startup tech companies' regulatory problems? You
3: know, in a, in a way, it's a bit of a dodge. The answer is, is both yes and no. I think you know the the company, the the, the issues that we're faced uh, on a very local level, you know, our, our our government relations issues. They again, they came together in a, in a very unique way. Um, you know, my my history, which you know now I talk about openly, Uh, I was a marijuana lawyer before I, you know, went to work for Airbnb. So in a a previous life, and there's, there's a lot of similarities in terms of these emerging new, uh, you know, uses where consumers are, are very excited about something government uh, doesn't know whether to continue, you know, prosecuting or to ignore or to embrace or to tax and regulate. Um, And so, you know, in, in that sense, I think, you know, there are similarities, certainly to emerging businesses, um, what I think is different is just simply the scope and scale. I don't think in all of the companies that I have worked with um, prior to really the the rise of the quote unquote sharing economy. And, you know, all will debate the efficacy of that term. Um, you didn't really see larger corporations having the degree uh, and complexity and breadth of local regulatory issues, you know, a a regulated utility, an electric company that had operations across jurisdictions is probably the closest analog. Um, And even those typically have some state regulatory, you know, structure that kind of governs how the local governments engage. Uh, But really that was sort of a a, a pretty new thing. Um, And to see uh, the need inside these companies for, um, to understand the state and local uh, Sort of regulatory and legislative processes in a way that really hadn't existed prior to the last, you know, decade or, or 15 years. Uh, and, and I guess thanks to Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, and you know some other companies, now is you know is standard. And what's most interesting to me, and you can see this in, in how venture capitalists advise their portfolio companies, um, you know, no one hires a policy employee. You know, a lot of these companies don't even bring lawyers in um, for the first couple of years. And now you see all of these companies reaching out very early being told by their investors, you know, you need to understand, you know, if not respond to you need to understand sort of your, your policy environment now and, and what things could look like as you grow to scale and, and to build with that in mind. And, and, you know, for someone with you know my background and my discipline, you know, it's it's really interesting to to see all of these sort of business leaders who are you know breaking things and and still coming up with interesting new ideas that are going to be the next uh you know that are going to continue to change the way that we live uh, for years to come you know thinking about what is the sort of policy impact and ramification of what we're doing pretty early in the process that that's pretty new especially for for innovators and entrepreneurs
0: and the term that we heard thrown around I think if Feels like it's been, it's not quite as popular anymore, but for a while I was hearing a lot about regulatory hacking. Um, this idea of finding ways to, 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 to to break through the established regulatory Framework. A few episodes ago in this podcast series, we we interviewed uh, Adam Thierer of the Mercatus Center. It's a think tank at George Mason University. His new book is called "Evasive Entrepreneurs," where he focuses on ways in which companies have have tried to navigate these regulatory frameworks in ways that allow them to innovate um, underneath the radar or around the radar of some of these these problems we've been talking about. But also what you moment, mentioned just a moment ago. Um, some of the, the the most famous of the of the venture capital firms in in Silicon Valley, they've brought in people really for their expertise in part on on regulation. Maybe the most notable example would be Ted Ulyat, who was at Andreessen Horowitz after his time in Washington D.C. But even Keith Raboy at, at Founders Fund, or I guess he previously at Coastal Ventures he came up as a lawyer and he's, did I get it backwards or maybe that was right. Um, That was right. right. That was right. That he's, he's talked from time to time about how his legal background um, equipped him maybe a little better than others to think through, How to, how to troubleshoot and maybe even arbitrage some of these regulatory issues, come into a situation where there's a pre-existing regulatory framework and see solutions that others might not see because they don't have that background. I'm not saying that Silicon Valley needs more lawyers, although, um, if they're, if they're hiring, I know plenty of law students looking for jobs, but I think it's safe to say that as Silicon Valley and other um, other hotbeds of technological growth continue to innovate these challenges of how to both navigate and reform regulatory structures are going to be more important than ever uh, Jordan do you have any closing thoughts before we uh, before we wrap up
1: no I would um, just emphasize something that I think both Stephen and David have said which is that um, in, to the extent that uh, city governments Put this on their agenda in the next year or two, which it it varies across places, and I think everybody has um, different things to worry about right now at the moment. But um, the you know from the last year or two of history of this in particular that I've followed pretty closely, um, coming up with regulations that are that are sensible uh, for the to meet the kind of social and economic demands that, that there might be in a given place. Um, requires that they be legible, right? That they actually can be compreh- easily comprehensible um, and kind of no matter the end that the city is working toward because some of these things you read through it and it's like the, the stereotypes of legalese that you see um, in, in humor uh, is, is come to life. So it's like life imitates takes art because some of the stuff is extremely difficult to figure out what it even means. Um, and a lot of these cities are losing in litigation left and right. Um, So I think that there may be a different playbook going forward, too, based on losses like in Miami Beach, where they violated state uh, preemptive uh, policy related to administrative fees. Um, The city, I think Austin just lost a lawsuit in Texas recently in a Texas Court of Appeals or some other city there. Um, So kind of looking at what I think courts will have a role going forward in shaping how far cities are willing to go, um, which may make the kind of appetite for regulation a little bit different than it has been in the past.
0: Well, I'm so grateful to all three of our guests today for, for bringing their perspectives to these issues. And we're grateful to Jordan for the, the paper that he wrote, which again is available on the Gray Center's Working Paper series. It's titled, um, it's kind of a long title, Jordan, I'll be honest, uh, Zoning for Disruption, Local Exposure to Non-Traditional Tourist Activity and the Rise of Regulatory Burdens on Digital Platform Short-Term Rentals in Major U.S. Cities. Maybe a little simpler to say, Gray Center Working Paper 20-13. Thanks to all three of our guests for joining us, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Please tune into the next episode in this series of uh, discussions on regulation and innovative technologies.